This one's thick. There's a lot of layers. So we're actually going to probably pause for thoughts a few times through instead of waiting until I get all the context uh, for us to give our perspectives. So are you ready to talk a little Uber and Lyft? Let us do it. Let's do it. Let's go for a ride. Ba-doom. Hey now. Ooh, and, and silence from the audience, all right? <laughs> <laughs> so, we've got more updates on AB5 and its effects in California. Uh, the last story we did on this was a San Francisco Superior Court judge, his name is Ethan Schulman, ruled that Uber and Lyft must comply with AB5, um, and that was decided earlier in August. As a refresher... AB5 is meant to more equitably classify workers, especially those often employed by the gig economy, to extend traditional benefits like paid sick leave, insurance, unemployment protections, etc., etc., to more workers that are often seen as independent contractors and instead getting them on the books as employees. So uh, a judge ruled that, okay, sorry, you have to comply with this. And even though the true test of whether or not AB5 will remain in California is actually more dependent on a uh, uh, an upcoming proposition, Proposition 22, which is going to be on California's ballot uh, in November, this order from Judge Shulman still sent Uber and Lyft reeling, and they they went on a you know PR campaign against this decision and even went as far as threatening to leave California. That's the whole reason we're having this conversation. So, the judge gave a 10-day stay on the ruling, which meant, okay, you know, I I said you have to comply with this, um, but you have 10 days to adjust. Uh, That would have meant that by midnight today, like this morning, Uber and Lyft would uh, have to begin complying. So both companies in the days leading up to today voiced very vocal concern and resistance to the judge's ruling, culminating in uh, Lyft saying that they're going to stop all operations in California and um, Uber basically signaling the same thing, that there's no way that they can meet these demands in the window that's given and therefore they're just not even going to try. So... That's just sort of the initial context for why we're talking about any of this. Now I want to get into some of the specific responses that Uber and Lyft gave. Tyler and I are going to give our thoughts after we talk on each one. And then I will give a final update on whether or not Uber and Lyft are actually leaving. You might already know the answer to that, but I want to walk through their uh, their responses from the last week first because I think they're insightful. So we'll start with Uber. Um, Uber CEO, uh, I'm going to mess up the name, but give me a break. Uh, Do Uber it with CEO, gusto. <laughs> uh, Dara Kosros, oh my goodness, um, Kosros Shahi, I, I, I think that's it. Dara Kosros Shahi uh, was interviewed on the uh, Pivot School podcast and had some choice things to say about Uber complying with AB5 or not complying with AB5. So I'm pulling a lot of this from a uh, The Verge article, so I recommend you all check that out if you want a full breakdown. But here are some of the quotes uh, that uh, Uber CEO Dara uh, Khosrowshahi gave on said podcast. So here's one of them. Quote, We can't go out and hire 50,000 people overnight. Everything that we have built is based on this platform that brings people who want transportation or delivery together. You can't flip that overnight. Uh, During the podcast, he also confirmed some reports that Uber 
in response, like if they have to comply, they were looking at some other potential business models, one of them being a franchise-style system where the company would license its brand to fleet operators in California. So there would be uh, you know, specific operators in California that run a fleet of Uber vehicles and then employees are hired by those fleet operators um, rather than Uber, the parent company, hiring all of those individual drivers. Hmm. Uh, here's what the CEO said on that quote. There's a black car service that we have that's based on fleets. Uh, and we're trying to figure out exactly what we do going forward. They actually run a, a similar operation in Europe that that um, runs off of a service like this. We're not really going to get too deep into that, but if you're interested, um, you know, look into that. That's where they're actually running a similar operation. So uh, he was also asked during this podcast whether or not Uber is a prime example of income inequality, and the hosts cited high-paying corporate positions versus the poverty line drivers saying, you know, hey, huge uh, income gap here. What do you have to say about that? He responded hmm. that the question itself starts with a, quote, false premise, which is drivers and couriers who use our system are employees. They are not employees. They can decide when to work, etc. This idea that, oh, you can have flexibility with employment at the same time, it's just false on the face of it, end quote. And here's the final quote I want to highlight from uh, Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi. CEO said, quote, I do think we have the system that's optimized. It's called capitalism. It's not called laborism. It's not called socialism. It's capitalism. And it's a system that's built to maximize shareholder value and capital. And if that's the only input, then you're going to keep getting the same results going forward that you do going backward. So these kinds of systemic changes, you know, I'm game for it. I don't want yesterday's capitalism 20 years ago to be the same 20 years from now, end quote. So a lot of a lot of quotes to unpack there. I think, honestly, each one has some, like, interesting insights that we should be talking about. Anything off the dome, Tyler, that you want to hit on first? Whew. That is interesting. Again, it comes back to that, that conversation where everyone looks at everything that Uber does and says your your drivers are essential to your business they are employees and uber keeps saying they are not employees they have flexibility with when they work and you know and that sort of thing and there are all of these different uh, examples of that but i think that you can also point to the gap that has been growing ever since uh, man if you look at some of the charts and some of the figures of the the disparity between income uh, from business leaders like CEOs, high level executives, and the workers that enable business um, from like the 50s and 60s up until now, that disparity has grown at such a rapid rate um, right. that it's that it's pretty incomprehensible. And I think that the business practices of a company like Uber enables that and really uh, exemplifies that that gap and the the utter. Um, uh, unwillingness to acknowledge that that these drivers are essential to their business model seems to be an indicator that they want to keep that in place as much as possible. And I think that that is a, a problematic thing for um, uh, for workers and for yeah. uh, the general well-being of uh, of of people who uh, rely on these types of jobs. And so, you know, I, I think that 
Uber and Lyft are, are seeing this thing and seeing how it's going to affect their business model. And I, I, I get that. It, it definitely changes what you're able to do as an Uber and a Lyft. But at the same time, you have to acknowledge the, the forces at work here and uh, acknowledge that there is this massive disparity. And so if this is to be your business model, uh, I think it's up to them to find creative ways to change it, not to complain about um, not to complain about the system or make these weird comparisons um, about capitalism, socialism, all of that sort of thing. There still has to be a standard by which you are required to treat your employees, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with basically everything you're saying there. Um, I want to just like go through each of the yeah. main little quotes. So you know, he said we can't go out and hire fifty thousand people overnight. Um, this whole platform is is built on connecting people that need transportation and can drive, and you can't flip that overnight. So actually, to a degree, I kind of agree with him here that like, mm-hmm. yeah, the concept of like hiring all those people and integrating them into the existing business model does sound a bit daunting. But you know, the context of all of this is like. And therefore, we're not going to do anything. It's not like, hey, please give us more time to comply. It's, you can't do this overnight, therefore stop making us do this at all. So, you know, it's not really a great uh, argument for, like, what their end goal is. If their end goal is you can't do this overnight, then, like, what if the, the, you know, the judges or the legislators and... California were just like, okay, cool. Well, we'll we'll give you three months. Uh, go ahead and um, adjust, and mm-hmm. we'll talk later. See ya. You know, like like they're kind of asking to, uh, they're asking for an on ramp to a world that they do not want. So I don't really think it's a great uh, argument. It feels a little defensive. It's not really like well thought out, in my opinion. Right. Um, it's interesting that there is a business model that Uber already runs that's a little more fleet operated. I'd like to actually do a full deep dive on that. I might integrate that into my upcoming uh, AB5 follow-up piece for Ratified. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's much more we can comment on for that right now. Um, okay, this one is is interesting uh, and one that I disagree with. So, you know, Uber, or excuse me, the, the hosts on this podcast basically pushed the CEO to be like, hey answer a little bit to some of the weird income disparities you have in your company. Uh, And I guess they're not really that uncommon, but this idea that, yeah, all your corporate employees are making, you know, nice money, your uh, executives are making huge six-figure salaries, and your drivers are uh, living on the poverty line. And his response that the whole question of, like, is Uber an example of income inequality, he's like, you can't even ask us that question because... You know, it it is precipitated on assuming that our people are employees and they're not employees. And then the reason he gives is that they can decide when to work and that uh, they have flexibility. And, you know, that doesn't exist if you are classified as an employee. There is nothing in AB5 uh, nor in labor law that says, like, if you're an employee, you now don't have flexibility. You Like, your employment mm-hmm. can not give you flexibility. This is an argument that Uber and Lyft are using to try to get drivers and riders scared of what a, uh, you know, a, a potential Uberless or Lyftless future is going to look like. They're saying... Oh, well, if we classify everyone as employees, well, you know, we're not going to be able to give them any flexibility. And now they're all going to have scheduled shifts and it's going to this, that, that. 
There's no rules that say that. Right. Uh, you know, the the bill basically is a classification bill. And yes, there are a lot of complaints around how they classify that affect other uh, independent contractors. And that's something that we need to dig in a little deeper to and that I plan on doing uh, on my program Ratified. But just at a surface level, these uh, these complaints that like we can't comply because uh, our whole value proposition that people can have flexible employment would disappear is false. That wouldn't actually happen. They would create that scenario. Like if that happens, it's because Uber and Lyft decide to make it that way, mm -hmm. not because they are physically unable to offer flexible employment that is also employment. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I think that's uh, I, th I think that's a really good point um, that you make just in, in parsing that statement because um, because yeah, you're you're right. This this doesn't remove the flexibility of of anything. It just it just says you have to treat employees better, right? Uh, which which again doesn't remove flexibility. I think more. I think most employees would like more flexibility as in terms of when they work and you know and that sort of thing. So uh, so that that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And uh, I, I just think, you know, for as much as it's like, oh, well, you know, this question is just false on its face. It's like, well, no, your response is kind of false on its face. Like it's this is not actually a dynamic that exists. You are creating this dynamic and using that as now an argument for retaining your current business model. And then just his whole breakdown of we exist in a system called capitalism. It's not laborism. It's not socialism. It's uh, capitalism and it's a system that's built to maximize shareholder value and capital. Honestly, props to him for like defining the system in uh, the most like realistic terms that I've heard from a CEO. Usually when you get uh, conversations around, you know, I, and, and honestly, not a lot of people talk just in the business world generally about capitalism. Like I think capitalism and critiquing it or talking about it is still pretty taboo. Um, and often it's framed as like, well, capitalism is like what allows small business owners to be small business owners. And like, if you get rid of capitalism, there's no small business or, uh, you know, capitalism is what allows consumers to have freedom of choice at the grocery store, right? It's like all these arguments that are like really removed from the system. The fact that he just on its face is like, yeah, no, we, this is capitalism. It's not laborism. It's not socialism. It's a system on share, you know, built to maximize shareholder value and capital. That is uh, accurate. That is true. And so I think that it's just funny that he is so straightforward with this. But I agree with you, Tyler, that even though his definition is uh, one of the more correct and honest definitions of like what our system really does and who it benefits, um, that doesn't mean that, oh, well, you know, we exist in a system that is built to maximize shareholder value and capital. Sorry, that means I'm just going to keep exploiting my employees, right? Like, it's, right. it's another one of those argumentative roundabouts that's like, okay, yeah, you analyze the situation well, but you're using that to justify your own business practices and business model, not, like, critiquing uh, the 
constraints of like what you're able and not able to do. Mm -hmm. So it's like because our system is meant to maximize shareholder value and capital, that's all I care about and that's all I'm going to do. And I could, you know, give a fart if my drivers, you know, live on the poverty line or not, as long as I'm operating the uh, company in the way that the system tells me I should be operating it, then I'm fine and, you know, stop critiquing me. Yeah. Um, and like his thought that like, oh, well, we can't just like have a better capitalism. You know, yeah, I want things to be better, but like we exist in the system we exist in. So like, sorry about it. Um, it's like as much as I like personally <laughs> like might be appealed to by the cynicism of that kind of argument. That's like, OK, yeah, I mean, I guess to some degree we are just we're stuck in the system we're stuck in unless there's a huge upheaval. Um, you know, this this idea that you can't in the meantime do anything like, oh, and therefore you cannot give your workers like uh, labor rights, like you can't give them uh, paid time off, like you can't give them I insurance uh, in a country that you know, already gatekeeps health insurance in a way that is unseen in the rest of the developed world. Uh, yeah, no, sorry, we, we can't do any of those things. We are just going to keep, uh, you know, doing what we're doing because the system told me to. Um, it just feels like a, a, I mean, for lack of a better word, just kind of a dumb argument. And uh, it's just interesting to see this argument as well as a really honest take on like, yeah, actually, that is how our economic system works. Thank you for the analysis. Mr. Dara. So, yeah. Any final thoughts on all those? Boy, no. I I, I think you're absolutely right that uh, just because, yeah. I, I I think I think your argument around capitalism is is spot on, and I think that there's a, a lot that can be said there. But we have more to talk about as far as this is concerned, right? So that's true. Let's, yeah. Let's I mean, talk let's, about what what their response is going to be. Let Let's keep chugging through. Yeah. Well, I want to get to Lyft as well. So um, that was Uber. Lyft responded through just a straight-up uh, blog and press release saying that at 11.59 Pacific time on Thursday of this week, they would indefinitely be suspending all operations in California. So the release was definitely posed as, you know, somewhat of a threat. Like, hey, sorry, if this actually happens, we're going to completely stop operating in California. Um, here's some of the points from the blog that stood out to me the most. They framed the uh, new model that California is pitching in this way. They're saying passengers would experience reduced service, especially in suburban and rural areas. 80% of drivers would lose work and the rest would have scheduled shift and capped hourly earnings. Lower income riders trying to make it to essential jobs and medical appointments would be faced with unaffordable prices, citing uh, a, I guess, stat from their internal operations, excuse me, that 38% of lift rides in California begin or end in low-income areas that have few transit options already. So, as I read a lot of these things, um, the only one that feels more, like, uh, realistic with the constraints of the system might be that riders would face higher prices because um, I assume one of the big ways that you know, they would have to readjust would be just inflating prices slightly to meet some of the, um, you know, the, the new demands of a business model that actually supports its employees more holistically. But even if that is the case, the idea that passengers would have reduced service 
and that 80% of drivers would lose their work and the rest would have scheduled shifts and that their hourly earnings would be capped. Um, those are decisions that Lyft would make. Like, they frame them as, like, the hand of God is just going to come down and mm -hmm. decide that passengers no longer have service in rural areas and drivers are going to have scheduled shifts and everything. It's like, you are the business. You can set how uh, to manage your employees. You can set how you even, like, conceive of flexible employment. Um but they're not. They're sort of just saying, well, if you make us do this, here is the really uh, rash way that we are going to respond. So it could be seen as a bluff. It could be realistic. But it just, you know, it is reminiscent of how Uber is responding. It's just like we are saying all these things are going to happen, but they're removing the key context that, like, they are the decision makers in this process, even though AB5 is telling them they have to adjust. At the end of the day, they get to choose exactly what they adjust to. And so what they're saying is we're going to adjust to a business model that prices you consumer out more that is going to axe a huge portion of our drivers and we're just going to decide to uh you know service less areas and i think this is all in an attempt to get more drivers and voters and riders on their side for the upcoming proposition 22 uh vote which for you know a little more context that is going to basically say should uber and lyft comply with this should they not uh, and the voters get to decide. So they, they, you know, it's basically put in the hand of the people uh, for a final decision. Um, here's a, a few other quotes from their blog post. Quote, this change would also necessitate an overhaul of the entire business model. It's not a switch that can be flipped overnight. Sounds familiar. Uh, quote, we are going to keep up the fight for a benefits model that works for all drivers and our riders. We've spent hundreds of hours meeting with policymakers and labor leaders to craft an alternative proposal for drivers that includes a minimum earnings guarantee, mileage reimbursement, healthcare subsidy, occupational accident insurance without the negative consequences, end quote. Uh, so with that, I mean, basically what they're saying is that we just don't want AB5 to give you these things. We'll give you diluted versions of these things huh. without the negative consequences the negative consequences being that lyft would decide to operate a business model that is more you know uh oppressive on flexibility and oppressive on uh pricing even though those are things that they get to decide and also you know uh it's important to understand that a negative consequence for Lyft would be the ability for these drivers to unionize and to actually gain more labor power uh, in the workplace if they're classified as employees. It's going to be much easier for them to unionize. Right. So that is a negative consequence. And it's, you know, obviously they frame the negative consequences like, here's what's going to happen to you, the poor writer. These are negative consequences for you. But when we're really real on it, the negative consequences are the ones that are impacting the business. And, uh, you know, that would include a whole swath of things from obviously having to restructure their business model to more uh, more labor power in the hands of the drivers. And then the last thing from the blog post I want to highlight is they said, quote, your voice can help. A ballot measure this November, Prop 22, proposes the necessary changes to give drivers benefits and flexibility while maintaining the rideshare model that helps you get where you need to go. We believe voters should decide. Please sign up to help today. End quote. So. Much like Fortnite in our story we did uh, previously yeah. with Epic Games getting their fans riled up against Apple and the App Store, we see 
major corporations doing this consistently, turning to the users and trying to sort of weaponize the situation, fire up their base, and get the consumers to uh, view it as a decision that solely impacts them and get them focused on you need to decide on the future of this based on how it's going to impact you, the consumer, uh, sort of relinquishing broader conversations on, you know, is this going to impact uh, the economy? Is this going to impact drivers? And like, even though they frame it as this is going to be better for driver benefits and flexibility, you know, what we've broken down is that any change to benefits and flexibility are still in the hands of these companies in the first place. So if they're bad, they're bad because the companies decided that they're going to be bad. You know what I'm saying? So right. thoughts on anything Lyft laid out there? <sighs> no, I, I, I think you're... I think the comparison between this and the Epic Games story that we talked about last week um, is is really apt because, again, I think they're trying to wage a public relations battle in, um, uh, you know, within the public and in the public sphere and trying to win that PR battle, which would mean they would then win that next vote, right? Whether or not Uber and Lyft can, uh, you know, can um abstain i guess from ab5 is that a good way of putting it um not have to comply with these these new rules and i think by trying to wage that battle they're trying to get the hearts and the minds of the public on their side and you know as we've talked about in the past that would require people to look past their own interests and towards the interests of others which isn't always the easiest thing to do you know uber and lyft have become such a um such an ingrained part of our society now where it's you know ubering somewhere you know it's a it's a it's a verb now like it's it's right. something that you it's just become part of our terminology so quickly and so easily um i'm gonna uber somewhere i'm gonna lift somewhere uh, everybody knows what that means now it's not a mystery and so i think their argument is going to be we've ingrained ourselves in the society and you don't want to lose the benefits that we provide the convenience the ability to get home from a bar safely thing you know i think that they're going to lean heavily into things like that uh, to try to win a pr battle to then win a vote um, which will then sustain their business model. And then, as you mentioned, offer a watered-down version of the benefits that AB5 presents for employees. And so, um, yeah, that's that's going to be really interesting to watch how that plays out and, um, and and to see what exactly comes of that and how voters vote. You know, I think that that'll be a, a very curious thing for, for me, just once again, to see if people want to look beyond how this impacts their pocketbooks and more at how it impacts others. And uh, I remain skeptical that, that people will, um, will choose what's in the best interest of others over what's in the best interest of themselves. It necessitates uh, a level of empathy that is in high demand right now. That is for sure. Yeah. So uh, let's go ahead and wrap up this story. There's some other points I want to highlight. But after all that back and forth and all of the threats from Uber and Lyft, uh, and the imminent threat of Judge Shulman's decision, which was you've got to comply, Uber and Lyft caught a break. So an appellate judge granted an emergency stay to lift the injunctions that were ordering Uber and Lyft to comply with AB5. So they now have an extended but still expedited time frame for their appeals. They have until the 25th to agree, and then they have until September 4th to file their opening briefs in response. So we're not seeing Uber and Lyft disappear just yet. A judge basically gave them an extension. But I wanted to end our story by highlighting what would happen if Uber and Lyft did pull out of California. We actually have a really good example of what might happen by turning to somewhere really close to home, Tyler, Austin, Texas. If you don't oh, remember, that's right. That's right. In 2016, 
um, Uber and Lyft completely pulled out of Austin, and they were gone for an entire year, actually. Uh, so let me go ahead and break this down. There's a great story drawing a comparison on these two situations in Wired. So go to Wired, check out their full story of this. It's really quite good. Uh, you know, shout out to that writer. So in May of 2016, rideshare companies Uber and Lyft ceased operation in Austin after losing a ballot measure. Interesting. We've got a ballot measure coming up in California. Uh, so the ballot measure in Austin was to force Uber and Lyft to require fingerprinting of drivers for background checks. Now remember, a ballot measure is something voters vote on. So the city of Austin and its people voted saying, yes, we want Uber and Lyft to require fingerprinting for drivers so that there's a background check on whether or not they're hired. So there's a whole other dynamic there on like um, felony uh, or excuse me, felon hiring practices and some of the oppressive ways that background checks actually keep a lot of people out of the workplace and keep them impoverished. We're not going to get into all of that, but I like to add as much context as possible. However, voters decided, yes, this is what we want. So the changes ended up being very temporary. They pulled out for a year, but by mid-2017, Texas state legislators passed a bill removing the fingerprinting requirement that Austin voters had approved. In that year, while they were gone, Austin adapted under the confusion. So here are some highlights. Um, a quote from Christopher David. He founded an Uber competitor in Austin called Arcade City. He said this, quote, In the downtown bar area, people were going up to the cars on the street, banging on the window, and waving cash at them. There was a huge shortage of cars. Just that imagery is kind of funny. <laughs> um uh, there were some new smaller competitors that came onto the scene because Uber and Lyft left. Uh, and it created a thriving community of rideshare options for consumers and a thriving market of competition, including Arcade City, Fair, Fasten, Wings with a Z, Get Me, and Ride Austin, which was a nonprofit actually. And for the drivers who were displaced, a hotline and eventually a job fair were, uh, were launched to help them and assist them in rehiring. Uh, the Wired story that I mentioned cites uh, a driver called Miguel Monsivais. He drove for both companies starting in 2015, Uber and Lyft. Here was his quote. Quote, within a couple of weeks or so, I started realizing it's actually better that Uber and Lyft are not here. This is our money and it belongs to us. It belongs to the community. End quote. Monsivais currently still drives a pedicab, picks up passengers for Arcade City, which still operates in Austin. Uh, and, you know, he has new dynamics that he's able to do. Now, Uber and Lyft are back now, but while Uber and Lyft were gone, it was a dynamic that was really unique to him. He could set up regular rides with repeat customers, something that these ride hail apps don't allow drivers to do. The whole, uh, you know, value proposition is that it is uh, completely anonymous and that there is no sort of segmentation on which driver can get which rides. It's just up to the algorithm. But when Uber and Lyft came back, they crushed the competition and they crushed them harshly. They returned with major discounts for riders, luring them away, uh, and competitors saw a major drop in ridership. The nonprofit that I mentioned, Ride Austin, for example, held out for about three years after their return. And though the drivers remained more loyal to the you know, community-based nonprofit program offering a similar service, this summer of 2020, they actually shut down, so they're no longer in the city. Hmm. The other apps and services that I mentioned have since either fallen apart or left the city or are operating at much smaller margins due to Uber and Lyft's increased pressure. 
So that's an example of what happened when Uber and Lyft left. We saw an uprising of uh, community-based rideshare apps. Then they came back and drove them mostly all out of business or at least down to irrelevance. Right. So final thoughts, Tyler. I mean, there's there's a lot of potential playouts that we could see in California that reflect what we saw in Austin. And uh, the future is still uncertain. So, you know, there's a lot of crystal ball peering that we have to do at this point. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true. And so uh, I, I think it remains to be seen exactly what the what the effects of this uh, are going to be. But uh, but certainly th- I, I like the Austin example. That's a that's a fantastic example of just what happens when these um yeah, what happens when uh, when they pull out of town and uh, and what happens when they come back. Totally. So final questions that I think audience y'all need to be asking yourselves and that we should all be asking ourselves as we continue to follow this story is one if prop 22 passes will uber and lyft leaving create a california-based ride hailing market that's better for drivers or will ab5 limit the way that uh california is able to respond to an opening in the marketplace Another question is, will Uber and Lyft's framing of this issue rally enough drivers and riders to their side? Are they making a strong enough argument? Is it resonating? We're not sure. We'll have to see. (laughs) And if they stay and pass amended benefits for drivers, so let's say AB5 uh, goes away, Prop 22 um, does not, or, well, okay, Prop 22 passes, excuse me, earlier I said if Prop 22 passes and they leave, I meant basically if Prop 22 fails uh, or, you know, what goes through is that they want AB5 to remain, then Uber and Lyft would leave. So if uh, Prop 22 actually does pass and it uh, means Uber and Lyft stay with those amended benefits for drivers, is that going to satiate the concerns that drivers and riders and activists have around this issue? Or will pressure remain? Will this be seen as a half measure? And will there continue to be, uh, you know, pressure from the streets, from the cars, and from the, uh, you know, from the uh, levers of government in California to force them to, uh, you know, expand how they treat their workers? So those are the final notes I want to leave y'all with with this story. This was a snippet from Business Casual with Daniel Litwin and Tyler Kern, your B2B morning radio show. Tune in Wednesdays and Fridays at 9 a.m. Central on the Simple Radio app or marketscale.com slash industries.